This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I am his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by Josh Basset to continue our journey through the Gospel of John, discussing the meeting of Jesus and Nicodemus and the themes of their conversation. Yes, a very exciting conversation, one that contains possibly the most famous Bible verse of all time. Can you believe it? Nah, yeah, I think 100%. May, uh, Genesis 1-1. That's true. In the beginning, let there be light. Is probably the contender. Yes, but in terms of Jesus, certainly, this is, it, it's at least one of the big ones. Yeah, no, th- I think this is it. For what Jesus says, I think this is it. Yeah, and you know, th- it's probably the one verse you can be pretty sure that you don't even have to read it. Most of the people at home <laughs> will be able to read it for you. Yeah. But yeah, it's a big conversation. We did talk about this passage once before um, when we we're going through The Chosen, episode 226 of Bema. Mm. Uh, but we kind of just talked about how they portrayed the conversation um, and probably uh, did not dive into the level of detail that Josh is about to drop on us right now. <laughs> so oh, go yeah. back and review that if you like, but I think, uh, I think this is pretty well standalone as far as that goes. Yeah. I actually, I, I have not jumped on the chosen yet. I know I need to, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but you know, my life's been crazy. I haven't had time for it. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm behind on those. So that'll be fun to be able to compare this teaching to that. I have no idea what's in that. <laughs> It's it's a completely different kind of conversation, so I don't I yeah, don't think yeah. these two will compare at all. But I do I do actually kind of want to start there. Like before we get into this, there's a lot of there, there's some pre context here um, in in this story. So if we remember back to like what just happened in the text, uh, you know, because we're starting at uh, chapter three, verse one, what happened right before this was you know Jesus cleansing the temple, pretty big thing. And uh, also, we were given a hint that it was around, do you remember what time of year it was, Brent? Ooh, um, this would be, was it Passover? It was Passover. Correct. And that will be very important for this. And actually, you know, before I say anything else, that's probably all the pre-context we need. Let's read the first two verses, Brent Billings. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Yes, exactly. So there's a couple pieces of information we have here that are really interesting. And the first one being, you know, kind of the uh, uniqueness of the setting, like Normally, when Jesus is talking to other rabbis, other Pharisees, it's kind of a public discourse situation. And here we kind of have, you know, this meeting that's happening at night. It seems, uh, you know, much more personal, like rabbi to rabbi. You know, it seems like Nicodemus just kind of pashat glazing over the whole thing. Like, he's like, hey, what, like, what the heck is going on? It seems like, you know, they're talking shop behind the scenes. And that's uh, pretty unique in terms of like, you know, the, you know, what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Something The Chosen made me realize is that uh, I've always pictured this meeting in like a garden sort of setting, mm. but the text does not say that, and it is not how The Chosen portrays it. So that's interesting that we don't necessarily have any direct clues as to where this took place, but... That is interesting. It's not <laughs> not as I have pictured it for, you know, 35 years or whatever. Yeah, that's funny. I always imagined it like happening on a rooftop or something. That's um, exactly what The Chosen does with it. Oh, that's funny. Well, there you go. Good job, Chosen. You read my mind. 
<laughs> but um, I actually think a garden might be a better place because, well, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, I, the other unique thing I want to kind of focus on here is like the person of Nicodemus, right? Because we're told a couple things about him. We're told he's a Pharisee. And we're also told he's a ruler of the Jews. He's on the, the Sanhedrin, which means, you know, he's bumping shoulders with definitely some Sadducees, possibly some Herodians, like he's in the, the political world and the religious world. Like there's a, he's got a lot of perspective that maybe not every single rabbi or Pharisee would have. And he's coming to Jesus right after Jesus does the, you know, this big audacious thing going in and clearing out the temple. And one of the other things I find really interesting about this is that like, you know, because he's a Pharisee, because he's part of the Sanhedrin, to some extent, he's like really enmeshed in the status quo. Um, but at the same time, like the way he approaches Jesus here, like, I mean, you know, you could probably read this a couple different ways, but just like his opening plea, like, hey, we know you come from God. No one can do these things unless God's with them. Like, we get that you're from God, but like, oh, like, what are you doing? Like, there seems to be something really earnest there, like, you know, He's, he's honestly just like, wants to know like, what the heck Jesus is up to? Why are you, why are you messing with the temple? Like we got, we got a fragile situation here. We are, we got Rome and we got our temple. Like that should be, that's a, you know, this is kind of a miraculous little niche we got for ourselves. Like, why are you messing with that? (laughs) And there's something really earnest I hear in that, which is, uh, I think really, really cool to, to take note of in the person of Nicodemus, who we know comes back later in the story. And, um, in fact, there's also a guy named Nicodemus that's mentioned in the Talmud that might even be this same guy. But all that's kind of beside the point. So uh, just to kind of reground ourselves, like this is a pretty unique conversation that's happening. It's not every day that two rabbis uh, that have, you know, maybe this much friction between them are able to talk, you know, in private or maybe semi in private, maybe the disciples were there. But the other thing, the last like piece of context I want to pull up, it kind of goes back to your garden uh, image of this, because um, one of the other details we're told is that he came to Jesus at night, which I always heard this like detail explained as like a secretive thing, which I think is definitely like kind of part of the the flavor of this. But especially since we're told this is around Passover. The fact that they go out of their way to say that he came at night when they could have just said, like, you know, he came secretly or he came and no one saw him. But specifically, they say he came at night. So to me that I'm thinking, you know, Passover, I'm thinking of a night. What comes to your mind, Brent Billings? Like, what night might this be? Well, if it's the night of the Passover celebration, perhaps uh, they each have a few glasses of wine in them. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I think this is probably the night of Passover. And as we know, in a later Passover, where does Jesus go on the night of the Passover? To the garden. And why is he in the garden? There was a, a Hebrew term. Oh, uh, oh, then the watching. Yes, the night of watching. Lael Shimmerim, which actually, that's the, uh, the first non-John reading I have for you there in Exodus 12. And this is kind of the, um, the text that they get the practice of Lael Shimmerim, which means night of, of watching or guarding. <clears throat> so Brent, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Exactly. God kept watch over us 
and came in and rescued us at the right time. And we are going to keep watching at night to see, you know, to see salvation coming. Is that the first time the fire appears in Exodus as God's presence? Ooh, um, no, because this would have been, this is Exodus 12. God, the, the bush happened in Exodus 3. Oh, well, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking the pillar of cloud and the fire in that sense. But yeah, the bush, yeah, is completely before that so yeah yeah okay. <laughs> no but that's uh that's great i either way there are a lot of a lot of good things we could get with that but i mean i'll tell you what brent billings we got to get moving on because we're only two verses in and this is jesus jesus hasn't even said anything yet it's it's gonna <laughs> but it here's the thing if it it doesn't have to be loyal shimmering it doesn't have to be the night of passover but i think it is because of what Jesus is about to say in verse three. So what is Jesus's response to Nicodemus's earnest reply of like, hey, what the heck are you doing? What's the big idea? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they were born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, if they're out there and they're supposed to be watching, symbolically watching for God to, to deliver them, and Jesus says, oh, you won't be able to see anything. You won't be able to see the kingdom coming because you haven't been born again. That's potent. That you know, that's got that Jesus flavor on it. Um, but the other thing too is like when you think of rebirth and Passover, does anything jump to mind, Brent Billings? It's all Exodus language. It's all Exodus language, and uh, specifically like the rebirth imagery in Passover. Like, where do you see that the most? Uh, the the Red Sea crossing of the Red Sea. I think. Okay, think a little bit before that. Like, what's the most potent like birth? Oh, the, imagery? the actual exit from their houses, right? With the blood on the door. Exactly, the blood on the door. Jesus is gonna get to the the crossing the Red Sea parallel later, but I think first, what he's talking about is that core Passover image of of painting the door and and walking out of the bloody door. So, first of all, I mean, we should probably ask like. Is this a real answer to Nicodemus's question, or or what is his real answer? Like, what is Jesus saying with this? And I think that, like, you know, regardless of the specifics, like Jesus is talking about rebirth. Like, on one level, you could take it as Jesus saying, "We need to do another Pesach. We need to do another Passover. We haven't actually left. We're still there. We need to be reborn, like they were." Um. But if we if we stand back even further, we could say, you know, whatever this rebirth is, it's some sort of spiritual transformation that Jesus is saying needs to happen before you can even see what God is doing. You can't see the kingdom coming because you haven't had this transformation. Now, what does Nicodemus say about this in verse four? How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Mm. Now, I always was brought up talking about, you know, this is just the most boneheaded answer of all time. He's taken Jesus literally, and he doesn't understand that Jesus is talking metaphorically, which to say that about someone who's, you know, not only a rabbi, but on the Sanhedrin is like, you know, come on, come on. This guy knows his text. It's if especially if it's Leil Shimmerim and Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you need to be reborn before you can see anything like he's picking up what Jesus is putting down. But it is kind of a mystifying answer. Like, what is he actually saying? What, what, do, what do you do? You hear anything jumping out, Brent Billings? Uh, well, I think he maybe he's saying, like, we've already had our exodus. Mm-hmm. Why do we need another exodus? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, like the things to pick out are like the parts of his argument 
that don't make sense if they're talking about it literally. Like when I think about like if someone told me like, Josh, you have to be physically reborn. I would just be like, okay, that's impossible. What are you talking about? Um, Think about the distinctions he makes. The first one is that how can you be reborn when you're old? But I mean, you can't be reborn at any time. I'm not an old. I'm not even 30 and I can't be reborn. Uh, Young Darius can't be reborn and he's a child, you know? So why bring up that, you know, the, the impossibility of being reborn when you're old, when you can't, when you can be, you can't be reborn at any age. The other interesting thing is his use of the womb image. Like if his point is just that it's impossible to be, be reborn, why this whole, like, you know, kind of outlandish image of crawling back into the womb. It's a little extreme. And maybe he's just, you know, making fun of what Jesus is saying. But if we're thinking of Passover imagery, what would the womb be? What is it they were being birthed out of? Um, Out of Egypt, I guess. They can't go back to Egypt. Exactly. Exactly. So he's kind of throwing it back to Jesus, kind of like what you were saying, like, do we need another Passover? And he's, and he kind of even puts a finer point on it. Like, oh, should we go back to slavery? Should we go back to Egypt? Jesus, is that what you're saying? We're not supposed to go back to Egypt. I know my text. We're not supposed to go back there for anything. What the heck right. are you talking about? And I think the the that kind of gives us a little more context for the old age thing that he mentions, which like, I think we could take it, you know, we're all Westerners. So let's start on an individualistic way of looking at that. When you're old, like, what do you, you like, you have a lot of experience. You've seen a lot of things. And especially, you know, since Jesus is talking about some kind of new spiritual transformation, when you're old, when you have a lot of life experience, you start to be like, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. I've seen this before. This is just another flash in the pan. This is just another mistake. It's just another whatever. And I wonder if what he's saying is like, how can we actually have the whatever kind of spiritual renewal you're talking about? How can we leave Egypt again when we have all this baggage from our own lives. How do we, how, can we really start from a clean slate, Jesus, whatever this means? The other thing is we could look at it like on a national level, on a communal level, like, you know, Israel's been through a lot. They've been through a lot of exiles. <laughs> and I think, you know, he's saying like, you know, like we're, we're living this golden age of Torah. Everyone, you know, this is the Torah Renaissance. We all know the text. We have it in us. We're living it out. Like, we're in our old age and you're telling us we need to start from square one. Like, what the heck are you talking about? We've seen so much. We've, we've gone through the trials. What else does, what else are you saying God wants from us? And I think out of all that, like, you know, I, I hope we hear there's something really um, reasonable in what Nicodemus is saying. Like, this is a, a valid question. I think, I don't know about you, but to me, it's like, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. And, and like, even just the idea of, of, yeah, of knowledge, like when, when you know something, you cannot go back and experience something for the first time as if you don't know it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think, you know, golly, especially, especially here in the pandemic, I feel like a lot of us know what it means to be weary and for someone to just come up and be like, Hey, why don't you just be reborn and, and get fresh, get new. It's like, oh man, come on. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> we got Rome and you're telling us we need to jump through more hoops. Like, golly, man. And especially because, especially because this is at the end of Pesach. And if Jesus is saying that, that didn't work, you need to be reborn again. You can't see anything. It's like, 
a little late for that teaching, huh, Jesus? Like, that would have been helpful to know at the beginning of Pesach if we're not doing it right. Why wait until it's over to tell us this? And with that, uh, I think we can move on to Jesus's response. Let's go ahead and read verse. Let's do a couple verses at a time. Let's do verse five all the way through eight. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Yes. Now, there's a couple interesting things that Jesus does here. First of all, he makes a really big change. Before he was talking about who can see the kingdom, now he's talking about who can enter the kingdom. And especially if we're thinking, you know, if our imagery is kind of all flowing out of this Passover Exodus place, when we think about entering someplace, what's that place going to be? Where are they going from the Exodus, ultimately? To the promised land, right? Jesus is telling him, you know, you shouldn't be surprised about this because uh, we didn't just leave Egypt and go to the promised land. We weren't just born out of water, born through the Red Sea, and then walked straight to the promised land. They had to stop somewhere along the way. And that's where Jesus is kind of separating this for Nicodemus and, and saying there's actually two kinds of rebirth. I'm not actually talking about that. Pesach coming out of Egypt rebirth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. And where would that place along the way be that they had to stop, Brent? Well, I mean, Sinai maybe, but also yeah. possibly the desert in general as they sure. oh, yeah. learn to live that all out. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think Sinai is probably the right image there because that's, that's where, you know, they're given Torah and, you know, the rest of the time in the desert is kind of experientially learning Torah, but it's all kind of the same thing. Like we, we didn't just leave Egypt and go to the promised land. We had to be reborn spiritually at Sinai. And I think this is like, first of all, this is a brilliant response to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was just talking about like how, how complicated it can be to try and start over um, when we have all this experience, when we have all this baggage behind us. And Jesus goes back and says, what, like the slaves didn't have baggage? <laughs> like Israel coming out of Egypt didn't have baggage? And yet what was the first place God wanted them to go? To Sinai, to to receive Torah, to be reborn, to live a whole different way. Like, and especially when we look at like what we, we might call like the heart of Torah, like especially with the emphasis on like what Jesus places uh, emphasis on as the most important commandments about like taking care of the alien and the orphan and the widow. The Torah almost always says what? Like you take care of the alien, the orphan, the widow, because you were once slaves. Like the Torah uses their baggage, uses that hard experience as the ground for that rebirth. So rather than it being an obstacle, Jesus is kind of turning around and saying like, no, it's always been this way. Like we've always had, like, you have to have that experience for that spiritual transformation to even take place in the, in the first place. Now... There's a lot of other things going on here, and I'm not going to get into all of them because there's uh, that whole flesh, flesh, spirit, spirit thing. I smell a lot of uh, creation narrative stuff in there. Uh, to really dig into it, though, we would have to make a whole detour back and really dissect day six of creation. So if you want a little project, that would be where I uh, suggest you go next. 
But we're going to just kind of skate over that and just say that Jesus is like making a distinction between two kinds of rebirth. Like, you know, they were reborn out of water and that immediately changed their physical material conditions. You're not slaves anymore. You went from slaves to not slaves. That's a rebirth. But then you need to go through another rebirth to become partners of God. That's a whole separate thing. And they need to happen in that order, but they're separate kinds of rebirth. And Jesus is clearly setting up that he's talking about that second one. And then he does this really brilliant thing because now that he's kind of shifted his images from being just about birth to being about water and spirit, he kind of takes that idea of spirit and, you know, both in, oddly enough, both in Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit and wind are identical. So then he kind of plays off of that and says this lovely little thing about, you know, the wind, you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. And that's what people born of the spirit are like. And I think in there is really Jesus's most direct answer to Nicodemus's question of like, what the heck are you doing with this big movement? And I think what Jesus is doing here is a little remez for Ecclesiastes. And we won't go into the quote of it, but you know, chasing after the wind, futility. We're born of the spirit. So for you to try and <laughs> grasp what we're doing from the outside is futile. It's futile. It's like chasing after the wind in Ecclesiastes. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is you can't actually understand what I'm doing from the outside. It doesn't make sense until you've had the spiritual transformation and then it'll make sense to you. And I think th this whole thing, you know, it, it seems a little bit like, you know, in verse seven, when he says like, you know, you shouldn't be amazed at this, you know, on the one hand, it's like Jesus is saying, this is the same as Sinai. Like this is, um, we've been here before in the story, but there's another level that I really want us to catch where it's like, Jesus is saying something really big here. Like Jesus is saying that what he is doing is on the same level of receiving Torah, like just sit with that for a minute about how big that is for uh, a first century anyone. I mean, first century any any Jew, but let alone a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Like this is a big thing Jesus is claiming here. Yeah, and I think Nicodemus's response is, you know, appropriate. Yeah, how absolutely. can this be? Nicodemus asks. Like he's like, whoa, wait, because it's like I do understand what you're saying. But do you understand what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a little bit. Yeah, it, it kind of has that like Abraham and Sarah hearing that they're going to have kids are like, are, like, really? Like, how is this going to happen? Like, like, okay, that's a huge statement. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually with that, let's go ahead and read. Uh, let's go nine all the way through 12. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, again, like you said, Nicodemus's response, it, it kind of feels a little bit here like he's, you know, throwing his hands up in the air and kind of giving up a little bit. And I think we see a little bit of Jesus responding to that kind of emotionally, just like, man, like you can't even handle this. Like, come on, dude, like you're supposed to be a top dog. Like, why don't you get this? Um, 
But there's another level to it. Again, remember the image Jesus just used was about who can enter the kingdom. So we're thinking about the promised land. We're thinking about the promised land. And then Jesus says that we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you people do not accept our testimony. I'm reading out of the NASB there, but that you there is plural. So when I say those things, Brent, what I, I see you nodding a little bit. What what jumps into your head? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the report from the promised land. Mm-hmm. They come back and and tell them all the good stuff, and they're not convinced. Oh yeah, exactly. And specifically, there were two among them who didn't. And what do the Pharisees have in their midst? Or not just the Pharisees, but Israel. They've got two people, two big voices, saying something very new in John and Jesus. And this parallel actually gets even better when you know Hebrew, because in Hebrew, Jesus's name is the same as Joshua. Like they're, they're identical in Hebrew. It's Yehoshua. Um, so when Jesus is saying, you haven't believed our report, he's saying, oh yeah, me and John are the two, the two good spies. And you all are afraid to enter this new land. We're telling you it's good. We're telling you that there's the spiritual rebirth. I mean, oh gosh, I didn't even think about this, but John's, you know, at the Jordan where they would have crossed into the land. And Jesus is saying, you like, we're just telling you what we've been experiencing with God and you won't believe us. Like, ah, that's so good. I know. Right. (laughs) Oh man. Every time Jesus is just so good. I mean, I know of course, but like to experience it, to see, to see the words is always so powerful. Oh yeah. Okay. What's really cool about this too is, um, like, I, I I love this for a lot of reasons, but I, I think what this does for me is like, especially when we think about the, you know, the humanness of Christ, like, um, as a human being who doesn't know everything, it's, it's really easy sometimes to just be like, oh, you know, Jesus had all this knowledge. He knew how to do everything perfectly. I don't. I'm just trying, sometimes I don't even know what's the right thing to do, let alone like having the, the, the strength to do the right thing, no matter what. And I think that, um, Jesus, you know, painting this picture of like being led by the spirit and being in this place where we're, we're just testifying and reporting to what we've seen and experienced of God. Like to me that, um, you know, obviously that's not the big point of this teaching, but it, it, it is a part of it. And I think I, I just always like to pause there and, and to really reflect on like, you know, you, you like we get to testify about what we've seen and experienced. And um, anyway, that's just a small thing. But <sighs> Jesus is telling him there's a whole promised land out there. There's a whole rebirth. There's a whole other thing. We don't have to stay in the desert forever. And actually, I've heard a, a really great rabbinic teaching on this because when the the ten spies, one of the things they say that's very odd is that um, that what they say about the promised land is that it's a land that devours its people. That it's like it's a it's a land that it, it'll take up all our time here in the desert. We just get to you know spend time with God. Don't have to worry about food or clothing. We're more comfortable with that. We don't want to have to deal with like oh now we have houses and neighbors and it's easier to get drawn into worldly things and. I think Jesus' challenge here is like, yeah, but that's, you know, we we get too stuck on having all the right answers or getting it right. And uh, Jesus is saying something powerful about just trusting in the spirit and getting out there and getting our hands dirty and experiencing God firsthand. 
any other thoughts there, Brent Billings? Yeah, I, I do. I do think that the simplicity of being in the desert mm-hmm. and staying away from world with things definitely rings true. Yeah. Like they, they weren't asking for a king like all the other nations when they were mm-hmm. back in the desert. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. Everything was, I mean, it was, it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was complicated. Um, it's not like they didn't have complaints or, you know, suggestions for the box, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was different. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's interesting too, is that like of all the group, like obviously the most deserty group in Jesus's time is the Essenes. Um, and you know, we could see the Pharisees as like relatively doing an okay job of trying to, you know, be in that Shephelah space being, being in the world and not of the world, you know, like actually engaging their culture to some degree. Obviously there's some uh, things we could nitpick there, but they actually do try and tackle that. And, and for, again, for Jesus to say, like, there's a hole, like you haven't even entered into the land like that. Again, that's a huge statement that Jesus is making here. And we should buckle up because verse 13, Jesus kind of cranks it up to 11. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and you read all Did the I read far to- enough? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I, I was thinking we would just read verse 13, but that's okay. We'll take that whole chunk. So, But we have to stop at verse 13, first of all, because, okay, so Jesus has been talking about what he's doing, this, the rebirth of spirit, and again, like in the Pesach Exodus imagery, that's Sinai. And here he's talking about going up to heaven and coming down from heaven. So what is maybe our first thought about what Jesus is talking about here? I guess I just spelled it out, you know, going up to <laughs> well, heaven. Well, are you, are, are you referencing the Jacob story? Um, oh no, you're the, the ladder. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that, because I was, I thought that's what you were trying to reference, but, but in that case, the, it was the angels. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, obviously Jesus references uh, the story of Jacob in regards to himself in one of the other gospels. That's not where I'm going, though, because I think like Jesus has been using Sinai imagery. So I think the first thing we would think of is Sinai, except this really doesn't work for Sinai because Jesus, if we were thinking Sinai, what's your, if you're thinking of ascending and descending Sinai, what's your first step, ascending or descending? The the mountain itself, Moses going up and down. Exactly. You got to go, you have to go up first, right? You can't go down from a mountain to go up it. You have to, uh, uh, presumably you have to climb the mountain first. But what Jesus says, he kind of flips that. He says, you can't ascend until you've descended. And then he links that <laughs> to the Son of Man. No one can ascend into heaven except the one who is descended from heaven as the Son of Man. And that kind of flips this whole Sinai thing. If we were going to put it at Sinai, one way to read this would be that he's talking about, because, you know, Moses went up on Sinai two times, Right. Um, two sets of tablets came down. One of them made it out. One of them was broken. So if we were going to put this at Sinai, we would have to say, oh, it starts with Moses descending to deal with the golden calf incident and then ascending later, uh, when he actually gets to see the presence of God, which we could take that apart. And there's a lot of juicy stuff in there, but I'm going to pull back from that because Jesus 
flips it from Sinai imagery. And of course, he references the Son of Man here, and especially referencing the Son of Man coming down from heaven. This is one of those times where it's like very clearly a reference to Daniel, not necessarily in the Ezekiel image. But Brent, tell me about like, what do you remember of the Son of Man and Daniel? Like, what does the Son of Man do? Oh, man. Always <laughs> testing me on the prophets, you guys. You and Marty. Well, that's okay. I'll, that's terrible. I'll, I'll help you out. So You, you got to bail me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right before the Son of Man shows up, God goes through all the other, the beasts, right? The four beasts that represent the different empires, and all of them falls, and then finally everything is given over to the Son of Man to kind of put the whole world back together. So... What Jesus is saying here is that before we can climb up Sinai, first, we have to come like the Son of Man. We have to be trying to put the whole world back together before we can actually go up and receive this this spiritual um, transformation, this rebirth of the Spirit. And what's also important about that is when we think about ascending to heaven, and especially when we think of uh, spirit or ruach, we might actually think of a different image. Think of when we we think of a a ruach, or it doesn't have to be wind, it can also mean a smell. Hint, hint. When does a smell ascend to heaven? The incense at the altar. Not just the incense, but every offering. In fact, that's in in Leviticus, you read it, the moment of atonement only happens when the smell of the sacrifice comes before God's presence. Mm. And what is it that why what is it that that brings Nicodemus to Jesus again? Except that Jesus went in and messed up the temple, right? Right. So on one level, Jesus is saying, if we're not trying to put the whole world back together, the sacrifices don't mean much of anything. We have to enter into this you know, into our spiritual life, into this project of putting the whole world back together. We, we have to enter it with the intent of actually putting the world back together. Otherwise, the sacrifices are meaningless. And if we'll remember, like from what we've taught previously on Bema with the other gospels, what was Jesus's problem with them turning, you know, selling things in the, uh, in the temple, or rather not in the temple, but in like the courtyard around it? It just made it, it took the, the focus away from what it was supposed to be. And made it less accessible to the marginalized. To the marginalized, and specifically, which marginalized group? Man, I'm just throwing all the tough questions at Brent Billings. <laughs> they did it in the Gentile court. Oh, is right? that where it was actually happening? Okay. I don't think I yeah. realized that. Yeah. Because they couldn't bring coins with the, the Roman emperor's face into the temple. So if you wanted to, if, if you weren't someone who was like bringing your own livestock and you had to buy it, you were buying it potentially with Roman coins that were idolatrous in nature. So you had to do that outside the temple, but you know, of course you want it conveniently right near the temple. So just do it in the Gentile space. doesn't matter. Uh, I think I thought that it was outside of even that. Oh man. Well, either way it is, it is. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's one way of, re- I mean, you know, of course there's, there are many faces to God's word, <clears throat> but, um, <laughs> If it was happening in the Gentile court, this would be an even more potent thing where Jesus is like, we're supposed to be doing something that ultimately is is supposed to include the Gentiles. Like explicitly, the son of man is there to say, okay, all these empires have had their chance. They, they've all wrecked shop. And the son of man comes in to say, let's bring the whole thing, 
the whole world, explicitly including those Gentiles. And so Jesus is saying, if our, if our strategy, if our approach to God's project doesn't include the Gentiles, then the sacrifices don't mean anything. It, it, it's really fruitless and it won't go up to God. And so coming into that, like the next thing that he talks about there is he kind of, again, flips this ascending issue away from Sinai and away from, uh, you know, the, the sacrifice, uh, the smell of the sacrifices going up into God's ears or God's ears, <laughs> God's nose. <laughs> um, hey, you know, God is God. His, his, you know, quote unquote body can work in whatever way, uh, it's, a, it's going to work. Yeah, That's maybe, fine. maybe I said something accidentally <laughs> profound. Maybe God does smell with his ears. Hmm. Huh. All right, let's chew on that. <laughs> God is not God is not bound by our yes. biological realities. Exactly. God's ways are not our ways. God's ears are not our ears. <laughs> oh man. So he again kind of judo flips this image of ascending and now he moves it to Moses in the wilderness lifting up the bronze serpent, which uh there are so many things we could talk about with that. What one of the really cool things is that um so we talked about, uh, on my very first episode, Moses, uh, striking the rock and the bronze serpent episode happens pretty shortly after that. And it's brought on by basically the people being so impatient to enter the land that they start, you know, complaining about manna, but not because they want to go back to Egypt because they're like, they're mad. They have to take a detour to get to the promised land. Um, and what's funny is that Moses kind of doesn't really respond. Like they end up kind of uh, navigating their own atonement. They, they actually go to Moses and say, Hey, we messed up. Will you go to God and pray for us? We'll repent. Like they kind of do it all themselves. Um, which I think might also be a cool little poke. Jesus is making at like priests, not doing their jobs. And, uh, especially, well, I mean, yeah, we could, we could go into a lot of things here, but, um, Jesus is now flipping this idea of our, our sacrifices, going into God's presence to the snake being lifted up and ascending so that people could be healed from this plague that was brought on them. Like that, that again, like Jesus is kind of grounding it in like, this is supposed to actually be healing to people like this, this son of man role that we're supposed to play of putting the world back together. It's supposed to actually result in like people experiencing salvation, having that eternal life, actually getting to know like a God who is good and a creation that is good and a story that is good. That's the, that's the point. And it's for everyone, not just us Jews. <clears throat> that's why. And again, to go back to the central question, Nicodemus shows up and says, Hey, why are you messing with the temple? And Jesus is like, because we, we lost the central story. We lost the whole point of the thing. And now we actually, we got to take a pause here because we're almost, we're, we're right at the doorstep of the verse. And I want to say something really quick. Obviously we've heard this verse a bajillion times. The lullaby effect is strong here. And so when we say the words only begotten son, I know everyone's first thought is going to be, of course, you know, this is Jesus. And that's true. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that's not true, but uh, that's not helpful to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. 
And to kind of flesh that out a little bit more, I want to use an illustration. Brent, uh, do you watch uh, Do you watch the Great British Bake Off? I do not. Okay, well, for you and for all the other people out there who are missing out on it, uh, it's a baking competition show, and every week one of the challenges they have it's called a, a their their technical challenge and they're basically given like a random recipe that they probably haven't heard of before they may or may not have experience making it but either way they just have to make it out of the blue no preparation and they're you know given their ingredients given a recipe but usually the recipe is like not the most helpful recipe in the world because it's supposed to be a challenge and so especially as the challenges get harder and harder eventually they get like sheets where it's like step one bake the cake step two decorate it and it's just like you know not very helpful and i think sometimes when we just jump to oh this is talking about jesus it can be unhelpful, not because it's not true. You know, there, there is a step one, bake the cake. That That's accurate. You do need to bake the cake. But there are a lot of ingredients that go into that cake, and it might be helpful to look at those ingredients. So with all of that being said. Also to note, there's question of whether Jesus is the one talking after this point anyway. Oh, golly. Or if it's John coming in and giving commentary. Now, I'm going to argue this is Jesus talking because this, I mean, maybe this isn't what he had to say to Nicodemus, but it does flow very cleanly from what he's just talking about. But what I'd like everyone in the audience to do is to try and like take, take you know, unhear the lullaby as much as you can. Um, think about how Nicodemus would actually hear this. Think about like where in the text you may have heard specifically that phrase only begotten son but just you know try and hear it with new ears and brent take us away read us the verse we don't need read to us for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life yes now if we are thinking of other places in the text we have maybe heard about firstborn sons or only begotten sons where does your mind go to um well does does Abraham use that phrase? Mm -hmm. Yep. Does Jacob use that phrase? Well, where would where would Abraham have used that phrase? Or where would that appear in Abraham's story? It seems like it would be um, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what God tells him is, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and yada, 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 offer him as a burnt offering. So that's one. But there's an even more essential one, especially given the fact that we're talking a lot about Pesach, a lot of Exodus imagery. So Brent, why don't you go ahead and read Exodus from Exodus chapter four there, those verses I sent you. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Yes. This is the first, like this is the opening thing to Moses and Pharaoh's interactions. Well, I mean, obviously they interacted before this, but this is like God's opening statement to Pharaoh is Israel is my firstborn son. Give them back or I'll take your firstborn sons. This is before all the other plagues. Exactly. Exactly. I don't even think there's been one plague yet. This is like God's opening thing of like, hey, let my let my son go. So if we're hearing John 3.16 in that light, 
who's the firstborn son? Israel. And wouldn't it fit what Jesus was just saying about the son of man for him to be like, God loved the whole world so much that he gave us into the world so that whoever, you know, whoever followed Torah, whoever listened to this story would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's about that life, not just for Israel, for the whole world. That's why, and, and this goes to go back to Pesach. Like, you know, we, we talked about a lot in the, in the Exodus episodes, like those who are the nine plagues for, like, what, what was their purpose? To show Pharaoh who God is. Yeah. Or, and, and specifically, you know, to, uh, oh, maybe this isn't in the Bema episodes. <clears throat> well, um, <laughs> so the Egyptian Aeneid, there were, there were nine major gods in Egypt and, you know, God kind of deconstructs all of them, um, and and ultimately, like they're they're not for Israel. Like Israel was Israel believed in God. They believed in Moses. Like their first reaction to Moses was excitement, um, or maybe not there uh, before he came back. But when when he <laughs> talked about leaving, they were they were pretty excited until Pharaoh started taking away their straw. Right. Um, they didn't need to believe more. It, the The signs were for the Egyptians. God didn't want to just bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He wanted to bring Egyptians out of Egypt. And what Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of is that like, it's always been about including the whole world. It's always been that from the very beginning, God love. That's why God gave us into slavery. That's why God has, has put us at the crossroads of the earth so that we, we could love the whole world. That is the whole point. That's why, that's why we have a Pesach to begin with. Here we are at the end of Pesach, and yet you're you're not interested in bringing any Egyptians along with you. You're ready to leave them all behind in Egypt. What about them? Do they do they should they get stuck in empire, or do they need a kingdom of shalom just as much as you do? Jesus is hitting some stuff pretty hard here. Um, now we're gonna come back to the Abraham thing, but we do need to keep that in mind. I want to circle back around to it at the end, though. So. Jesus is recentering us in the purpose of God's people, God's only son that he sacrificed in many ways to bring the whole world to him. How does Jesus continue this teaching? And uh, let's see, let's do, let's do verse 17 and then let's just do 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Right. And actually, John is going to continue to talk about this idea of judgment all the way through the end of the chapter. So we really have to kind of center ourselves on what what we're talking about here with this kind of introduction of the idea of judgment. So first of all, we're told in verse 17 that God didn't send the son into the world to judge it. God didn't send Israel into Egypt to like destroy Egypt. That wasn't the point of it, but to try and save Egypt, to try and save the world. And, and he did yeah, initially through Joseph, save them from the famine. Absolutely. And, and we also, you know, it, it says in the text that a mixed group went up out of, out of uh, Egypt. There were, there were Egyptians that went along with Israel and stood at Sinai and became part of Israel. Um, in fact, we even have a, a very interesting story about a half Israelite, half Egyptian young man who gets into some trouble, but that is its own story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite teachings though. Um, 
but anywho, so it's like to some extent that there was success there, but, but again, like it, Jesus is really just re regrounding everything and saying like the, the scope of our mission is the whole world. And if we, you know, that, that's not to say we can always accomplish that, but it's like, even if you're not like, you know, none of us can just press a button and, you know, give homes to every homeless person or whatever. Like we can't just fix all the problems, but are we thinking about like, hmm, what could I do that might plant a seed, break a cycle, actually start helping shift momentum toward putting the world back together? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And if we have a temple that really only has room for good Jews and not as much for Gentiles, then we're like, we've systematically made it impossible for us to do our job, to do the mission that God has called us to do. Now, verse 18 is very interesting. Um, it's a little bit like kind of convoluted. This is a very different kind of judgment. Normally when we think of judgment, we think of like, you know, making a decision one way or the other on something. Right. And in verse 18, like if we really take it apart, Jesus is talking about a very different kind of judgment. He says, the one who believes, it's not that they're judged positively, it's just they're not judged at all. Mm. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who doesn't believe has already been judged because he has not believed. So it's like there's um this kind of judgment that is almost like self-administered. And in fact, if we're thinking in Pesach imagery, there were nine plagues where God made a very clear distinction, right? Judgment as we normally think it, right? The plagues fell on the Egyptians and not on the Hebrews. But then in the 10th plague, that all flips around. And there is a judgment that falls equally on everyone. And you have to like proactively um, take steps to, to exempt yourself from that judgment that's coming. Right. And again, if we were just talking about the, you know, that, uh, Exodus four passage, you know, how brilliant to, to jump from talking about Israel as the firstborn that God sent into Egypt to now saying, talking about the, the judgment of the firstborn and saying like, this is how God actually judges things. <clears throat> um, this is how God actually like brings kingdom is, is not by just like getting rid of all the people who aren't already on board, but by, uh, uh, sending the sun in so that people can just follow or not follow. And, um, with that, I think we're ready to go to the, uh, the very last little bit of verses here through verse 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Ooh, interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting translation there of that last verse. Um but let's get into this. So first of all, John is bringing up a lot of new images here. Just just to allay all the questions, I'm reading from the NIV. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. I and I'm I am. Uh, if you hear me reading anything, it's going to be out of the NASB. Um. So 
the the translation I have of verse 21, a little bit different. Uh, the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God, not in the sight of God. And that actually, I think, is um, – I dug a little bit into the Hebrew. My Hebrew is not anywhere near as good as my Hebrew – or my Greek is not anywhere near as good as my Hebrew, and my Hebrew isn't even that good. But um, I think sight of God is probably not quite as accurate as in God. But I would say that that you know, is a, a very forgivable because – as I just read it, it's a statement that's a little bit hard to parse, but let's just start from the beginning in there in verse 19. So Jesus is kind of clarifying what the judgment is. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And when I think of that, what bells are ringing? Light coming into the world. Genesis one. Genesis one creation. And in fact, we kind of, I, I didn't really get into this, but back at the very beginning of this conversation about like, you know, back when they were talking about crossing through the Red Sea, like there's creation imagery in the Red Sea as well, a ton of it. And that kind of goes with that um, day six conversation I was talking about. But either way, so John is saying the actual like mechanism of judgment is that light has come into the world. There is a new creation that God is, God is doing something new. God is creating kingdom in our midst and we either participate in it or we don't. And this gets back into the, like, you know, the, the idea of everlasting life as like a future thing versus as a, like a present reality that we experience and all that. I won't rehash that conversation, but I would just say simply like, this is the invitation to participate in kingdom. That's what the judgment is. Either you, you say, oh, wow, this is a different story. This is a story that has life in it. I want to be a part of that. Or you don't. And that is the functionally, that is the judgment that's been talking about, uh, Jesus is talking about here. However, Jesus then, he doesn't leave it there with just this new creation idea. He jumps ahead and starts talking about people, like what makes people maybe not flock to this light? Because I mean, when we think about new creation of light coming into the darkness, like we all think in our heads, like, that sounds so beautiful, right? Like, oh my goodness. It reminds me of, um, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, um, the tree of life, but they they have a lot of images of like, you know, kind of creative representations of the creation of the world. And it's, it's very beautiful. And I think like, you know, when we have that image of a new world being born, we, we have a sense of like, Oh, I would jump into that. I would be a part of that. But you know, we all like to think that I, I would like to think that about myself, but do we really? And Jesus immediately goes into like, what stops us? from jumping into this new creation of God's. And he talks about people who are, who hate the light, who don't like it because they're afraid their deeds will be exposed. Now, when I think about hiding from the light and being afraid of being exposed, especially with creation, I see you nodding your head. What's popping into your head? That's Adam and Eve at Genesis three. It's Adam and Eve. I sinned and I'm, and now I see that I'm naked and I feel exposed. I feel like a predator might jump out of the bushes that God might just tear me to pieces. And so I, I hide and I hide deeper in the tree. I, I, I cover myself in darkness because I'm afraid of the light. And like, again, like to kind of go back to the simplicity side of it, like this is Jesus reminding Nicodemus and all of us, like we have very human, very like very real reasons for not wanting to step into the light. Like there's a lot of um, exposure that happens when we actually 
surrender to the spirit or just like try to bring kingdom because it's like, you're going to mess up. And I don't mean mess up as in like, not do it in an optimal production type way, but that like, you know, you're going to hurt someone's feelings. You're going to realize an inadequacy you have in yourself. All that's going to get brought to light the more you actually engage in building kingdom. And that can be really scary. We, we get comfortable in places. We get comfortable with our own temples. And it's very easy to just be like, well, let's just keep this thing chugging. Let's not mess with a good thing, Jesus. Let's not, you know, we, we don't need to break this open. And... Yeah, I, I think it's important for us to stop and, and reflect here on how much we really are comfortable stepping to light and being exposed. And uh, to just like comment one thing on the, um, uh, hopefully one day in the future, I'll do a whole teaching on Genesis 3. It's one of my favorite things. But one of the things I, I like to think of is is um, I remember being taught that um, the clothes God gave Adam and Eve, because it says that they were made of skin, that they were it was animal skin. God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. One of the other ways you could read that is that, um, you know, God had already clothed Adam and Eve in skin, right? Mm. And maybe, just maybe, what God did to Adam and Eve was just remove all that clothing of darkness and clothe them in light and say, I already gave you clothing. I already gave you skin. Just let the light be on it. Let the whole thing be exposed. It's okay. I know. And and this is where I think verse 21 is so challenging. This is like, I feel like we, we often like really don't sit with how radical what Jesus says here is. The one who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. Like grace to the point where you're able to accept that even your flaws, even your sin is part of God working in you because like, you know, I know what happens when I hide my sin, you know, it festers and grows, but when I sin and I'm, I'm in community with people who, who have grace and, and who love me, when that sin comes to light, it actually becomes something that new life comes out of because I can, I can see it and recognize it and acknowledge it, but we only have that if we're, if we can beforehand trust that that grace is going to be there, that that sin that gets exposed isn't going to cause us to, you know, be, be pounced upon and torn apart, but that that nakedness will be loved and to whatever degree it is unhealthy will be made healthy rather than just cut off and cast out. And yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like that's such a huge, huge statement of grace. I'd really encourage everyone to meditate on that. Yeah, that is is so hard. I mean, even for the, you know, 30 seconds I've been thinking about that, just the, the hesitation I have mm-hmm. about stepping out into that light. Yeah. Because it feels so vulnerable, so scary, so... Yes. So much, I'm sure that it's not going to go well. So why would I do that? Yeah. Why would I, why would I bother? Like that grace, that level of grace isn't real. Mm. I can't, I can't take that risk. And now is the time that I want to go back and talk about Abraham. So go ahead and read that Genesis passage I sent you. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Yes, and I I want us to hear all that right at the end. All the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? This is the exact point Jesus is making. And and let's hang on to that as we remember like the rest of this. So we just heard like God God pops up two separate times, right? God pops in the first time to say, "Whoa, hey, don't kill your son." Uh <laughs> uh you know, you passed the test whatever we we could get into that. But um you know, talking about nakedness and exposure, like when I think on Abraham's story, especially like reflecting on how much chesed, how much kindness Abraham clearly had in his heart, like he had to leave a lot of people, you know, he had to leave his family. He had to leave his dad when his dad was mourning still. He had to leave Lot. He had to leave Hagar and Ishmael. He almost lost Sarah a couple times. He tried to set up shop with Abimelech and then that didn't work out. Like he keeps losing people and then God shows up and is like, all right, all right, do you, you, you might be going through life and feeling like I'm just trying to take everything from you. You might be afraid that I want to take Isaac too, that that's not real. Why don't you expose that? Why don't you lay that naked and see what kind of God I am? And it's like on his way up to the mountain, well, you know, it even says this in Hebrews, but like Abraham believed that God was a God of love and a God of grace. I think we see that in Abraham's actions, but something changes when Abraham like experiences it, like when he sees it and it, what you said before is perfect. It's like that kind of grace isn't real to us until we actually experience it. And if we're hiding in the dark, if we don't touch the new creation, we won't get to experience it. We won't get to see that there is no judgment on us when, because you can only see that when you're in that light. And, oh man, like it, what I also love here too, is the way that this story works in sacrifice. Cause God didn't tell Abraham to sacrifice the ram, right? <laughs> like we have, like, look, look what happened. So, so God comes up, tells Abraham that he did enough, right? He, he did a good job. And then Abraham looks up and sees there's a ram caught by its horns, which especially in ancient times, horns are a symbol of like power, wealth, a ram caught by its horns. And all of a sudden he, you know, I think this is my reading, but I think he realizes like, oh, okay, God, God didn't take all this from me. God didn't, God didn't send us into Egypt to abuse us, to beat into us right and wrong. God brought us here so that we would have a story that we can tell people about a God who's good. And he sees this ram and he says, I'm going to sacrifice this to God. And it tells us right there that this turns into like a, a saying, a phrase that 
on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Like this is a God who you show up and God provides the sacrifice. God doesn't ask it from you. God is a God of grace and hospitality and love. And on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And this is literally the mountain they built the temple on, Mount Moriah. And Jesus is saying, like, that's the sacrifice God wants. The sacrifice that isn't there because God wants anything from you. God already got what he wanted out of Abraham. Abraham went above and beyond so that he could say to people, God provided the ram on the mountain. He doesn't, it doesn't say that God provided the ram. The ram was there. And Abraham used that to tell people a story about a God who provided, a God of grace. And Jesus is saying, like, that's the kind of sac- that's why God sent us into Egypt. That's why God sent us into all those exilic places, so that we could be here telling this story. And now you're not even interested in telling it to the people who don't already know it. Oh my goodness. So good. So many, so many layers to this one short story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is, yeah. I love this. I love this chapter. I I feel like I could just keep on talking forever, but like, I don't know. I I feel like we, we left all the pieces here for people to, to dig into more. Um, but yeah, like this is, this is a God of radical grace, like grace that should actually make us uncomfortable because Jesus tells us it does. Like we, we like to, we like to stick in our dark little niches where we're comfortable. Um, there's actually, oh man, one of my, um, favorite quotes from Heschel. I forget which book it's in. I think it might be God in search of man or man is not alone. One of those two, I think. But he says, um, faith is the breaking of our spiritual paths. Like there are, ways that we learn to follow God. And those are good. Like those aren't bad things, but they become things that we're used to things that can end up becoming comfortable for us can become our comfort zone. And faith is the thing that pulls us outside of that. And the reason why the spirit pulls us outside of those things is so that we can have this rebirth. Like that Abraham seeing God on the mountain is the spiritual rebirth Jesus is talking about. Like that's being reborn of the spirit knowing, I mean, and, and isn't this just like how Jesus talks about the spirit everywhere else? Like when he sends out his disciples, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The spirit will provide just like what Abraham said on the mountain. It's provided the place where you're supposed, God will provide the sacrifice right when you get there. The spirit will provide the words right when you get there. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't, you just actually tell your story though, actually like seek out a story to tell <laughs> if you don't have one or don't have an experience there for yourself, go out there, do, do what Abraham did. Abraham carried a belief of a good God, but it wasn't until he got to the mountain that he actually saw that lived out. And, and when you see that, like, like you said, Brent, like once you see it, then reality changes. Oh my goodness. And yeah, uh, it's just, it's so powerful. And, and especially I think when, when God brings temple cleansing moments or when God confronts us in our lives in ways that might feel disproportionate or might, you know, feel challenging very deeply, like what would it be like to, to stand in the light and, and let our, our nakedness, our humanness be exposed and just trust that Again, trust that exactly what Jesus said in uh, verse 21 or John, depending on how you read it, but I'm reading it as a Jesus thing, that if we just stepped into that new creation, 
It, it doesn't say that everything you do won't be a sin and therefore it will be seen as having been performed in God. It says everything you do will be revealed as having been performed in God. Like all of it, you'll, you'll see that all of it contributes to kingdom, even our mistakes. And that, yeah, I have a hard time accepting that, especially living it out. Yeah. And I like that this whole story with Nicodemus is like, hey, let's remember the fundamentals here. Let's remember mm-hmm. how God created the world, what he's been doing since the very beginning, yes. how he's always provided for us, how he's always redeemed us, mm-hmm. and what our mission is in the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's the, whole, it's the whole thing in that one little <laughs> chunk of John. Yes. It is so good. Yeah, there, there's a reason why we quote it. Because even on the Peshat level, like it, this gets to the heart of the story. It's so beautiful. Okay, well, I think we've given people enough things to think about. We've got <laughs> yeah. uh, some extra projects out there that people can explore on their own. <laughs> yes. Or they can just think about, you know, what we've talked about directly for a while. There's there's plenty of, plenty of stuff to do here. So mm-hmm. that'll do it for this week. Yes. Uh, you can get a hold of me on Twitter at EIBCB. Um, you can tell Marty how awesome this episode was at Marty Solomon. And then you can find Josh on the Baymoss Slack. Mm-hmm. So thanks for joining us on the Baymoss Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Ooh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill episode was 111.55. I think, uh, I don't know if we're going to beat that. We're going to be right around there, though.